privilege we have uh, to turn uh, to God's Word again this morning and to hear it uh, proclaimed and, and taught. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John yet again, John chapter 16. We're uh, making our way through this glorious Gospel that has exalted the name of Christ, has proclaimed Him as Messiah and Son of God, and has demonstrated it through and through that He is indeed uh, the promised one. Last week, we considered uh, the very sobering statement, you'll remember, from Jesus, that we should not be surprised if the world hates us for following Jesus. For if the world hated Jesus and rejected him, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. And he said, therefore, you should expect that the world will hate you. And so Jesus, in that passage, spoke of uh, rejection and persecution, and he had done that throughout the ministry. You remember, and he had said before that the world will reject you and persecute you, but this time he went into a bit more detail about what that would look like. He, he specifically told them they would be thrown out of synagogues, uh, the religious institutions, and that they would be killed in the name of serving God. And so he went a bit deeper for them in that passage and gave them a specific account. And the reason Jesus told them this was not to scare them, okay, because that can be very frightening, right? It's one thing to live in a community where people dislike you or even where they're indifferent to you. You know, if you've ever, someone's ever been indifferent to you or even if someone doesn't like you, and we've all experienced that. People ignore us, don't like us, don't want to be with us, and that's bad. But to live in a whole community that hates you can be very frightening. And yet Jesus didn't tell them this to scare them. The reason he told them this was to prepare them for what is to come. And so that's what he said in verse 4, verse 4a of chapter 16. He said, I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And so he's preparing them to think back to God's words, to Christ's words, to trust him. He even knows the future. He knows this will come. And so he gives us to prepare them that they may settle in him. And so then we pick up this morning in chapter 16, uh, in the second half of verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, thus is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the word that you have inspired your disciples to write down by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has given us um, a great and a precious promise here in this passage. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit who would come to aid and come alongside your witnesses, to come alongside them that he might uh, work in the world uh, for the purpose of glorifying Christ. And so we ought not to be scared in the world in which we live, but we ought to remember this great and precious promise this morning. So we ask that the words of our Lord would resonate in our hearts, would strengthen us and empower us and equip us, that we would be a people built up in him according to your word, that we might live in the way that you have called us to live, that we might fulfill the mission for which you have prepared us to live, uh, which is the mission of proclaiming uh, the glories of Christ and living the glories of Christ in a in a dark world. So bless your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So while Jesus says the world is going to hate them, the reason they needed this sobering preparation is actually stated by Jesus in verse 4b. And we just read, and he said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So in other words, Jesus is, he knows he's leaving and he knows he's departing. And he knows he's going back to heaven and his disciples who have walked with him for these three years are no longer going to enjoy the comfort and freedom that they had while Jesus was with them. While Jesus was with them physically, they were able to feed off of his strength. They were kind of hedged in by his presence, and Jesus didn't allow them to be tested and tried beyond what they were able to bear. And so as long as Jesus was with them in the flesh, he absorbed so much of the derision and the opposition from the world. He deflected it, as it were, from them and absorbed it himself. And you even see a picture of this in John 18. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they come to arrest him, and they say, where is Jesus of Nazareth? Remember, all the, gu the guards come in, and he says, I am he. And they, they fall down before him, just at his at his word, and then you see Peter even cuts off 
the ear of the soldier and, and Jesus restores the ear. But, but you would expect with doing that with your own sword that Peter would have also been arrested in that kind of context. But even Peter is, is spared. They don't even arrest Peter. He, he speaks a word and the soldiers fall and he absorbed all of their opposition on himself with Jesus in the flesh. And so they were living with Jesus for these three years and Jesus had kind of, his presence had hedged them in and protected them. And they could see that the opposition was against him, but he kind of, he protected, not kind of, he did, he protected his disciples. And now he's going to be leaving them. They had naturally, as you and I would have learned, with Jesus physically present, they had come to trust him and to lean on him for everything. But all of that trusting and leaning on Jesus was, was based on his physical presence with them. They, they, they had Jesus, he was physically present, and so their trust was based on that physical presence. And now that Jesus' physical presence is leaving them, he's going back to the Father, something he brought up in chapter 13, verse 31, after washing their feet. He reiterated here again in verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. So he's, he's now leaving. And what is interesting about this, this passage in verse 5 here is it's, it's actually followed by this uh, loving reproof of Jesus. And Jesus says to them, and, and none of you asks me, where are you going? So he's leaving. He knows they're struggling. And now Jesus says, I'm going back to the Father, which he told them before. And he says here, but none of you asks me where you are going. Now, why is that interesting is because on its face, it seems like a, an unfounded charge against the disciples because what had happened in chapter 13, after Jesus told them he was going. Remember what Peter said? Peter said and asked, Lord, where are you going? And so here Jesus is saying, now I'm leaving, and none of you asks me, where are you going? So why is he, why is, what is Jesus getting at here? And the answer, I think, is this is that in Peter's initial question, he is, it is more along the lines of, why are you leaving us? One commentator explained it like this. He said, so it's more along the lines of not knowing more about where Jesus is going, but why he's going. And one commentator explained it like this. If, if a child was promised by his dad that he's going to take him to a, a baseball game, okay, or something. And then the dad is, on the day of the baseball game, the, the dad is called to an emergency meeting. And the child says, ah, oh, dad, where are you going? The child doesn't really care about the destination. It's more of a disappointed protest. Why do you have to leave? And that was really what Peter was getting at when he said, Lord, where are you going? Peter was 
protesting, and the point is that that question of Peter was still focusing on their loss of the physical presence of Jesus in the present world. It didn't focus on where he was going and what it meant for them that Jesus was going to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so they're thinking very earthly-minded. And Jesus is really telling them, I told you I'm going back to the Father, and if you had asked me to tell you what that means and for what purpose I'm going away, I would have told you, and your grief and fear at my departure would have been alleviated. It would have been alleviated because they would have realized that Jesus being at the right hand of the Father means that all authority and power to protect them in the world is, is in Jesus. Does that make sense? The Jesus leaving to go and sit at the right hand of the Father back in glory means that all authority and power to protect them in the world is, is in him. And so his physical presence here is not a loss for them. They don't lose anything. Their, their fear and their grief, if they had lifted their minds up to the glory of that thought and asked him, well, Lord, where are you going? And what does this mean that you're leaving us to go back into to the glory? It would have alleviated all of their fear and anxiety at the loss of his physical presence. And so Jesus says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. So, so they're, they're still sorrowful. They, they haven't lifted their minds high enough to think about where Jesus is going. They're, they're still wanting to keep Jesus physically present. And so in verse 7, Jesus turns their attention to the Spirit, and he says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you that it is to your advantage that I go away. That seems really interesting. It's to your advantage that I'm not physically here with you. Why? Jesus says, If I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go I will send him to you. And so all of this that Jesus is getting to, he's, he's, he's referring to that Old Testament promise of the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his reign. If you look at Isaiah 32, verses 14 to 15, or 44, 1 to 5, or you can look at Ezekiel 11, or chapter 36, and so on, when the reign of the Messiah comes, the Holy Spirit and all of these blessings will be poured out on his people, and it's going to have a profound impact on the world. But Jesus says the Spirit will not come until Jesus dies, is risen, and is exalted back to the right hand of the Father until he returns to glory, at which point the Holy Spirit will, will come to, to the disciples. And so Jesus identifies this as good for his disciples. That means it's good for us. 
what happens is sometimes we have these desires and where we think, and we've talked about this before, but where we think that if Jesus would just make himself known to us in our physical senses, that somehow our faith would be stronger. And you've got all kinds of people that spend their Christian life pursuing physical senses of the presence of God in, e in, in order to confirm their faith in Jesus. So this is where you had a lot of this in the charismatic movement. You see a lot of it in Pentecostalism. You see a lot of these types of things in, in various parts or segments or sects, sects of Christianity because people are pursuing their senses in order to confirm that Jesus' presence is with them. And yet Jesus says that it's actually to your advantage. It's actually better that I go away because when I go away, he's telling them, the Spirit of God will, will come. And that means it is better for you and I to be alive today than when Jesus was alive. Sometimes we want to think, well, if we were there with Jesus, we would have been strong. We would have been faithful because we would have seen him and we would have walked with him and we would have talked with him. But Jesus says, don't, don't think that way. God has given you, he has sent us his spirit so that it is better for us to be alive now after the coming of the spirit of God. And the evidence of that and the presence of the spirit in the church and what you see after Pentecost is evidence of that, isn't it? When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost, all kinds of things started transforming about the world in which we live. How many people, after the Holy Spirit came, started coming to faith in Jesus Christ all the way to the ends of the earth? People were being saved from every tribe, tongue, and nation. At Pentecost, they were preaching the gospel, and everyone heard it preached in, in their own language, and people were coming to salvation from everywhere. And the church was exploding and people's lives were being transformed. They came from death to life, from, from oh, disobeying God and rebelling against God to, and worshiping idols. And they came to confess their sin and to repent and to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. But while Jesus was on the earth and his physical presence was there, his effect and impact on the world and his disciples was limited to, the, to them and to the people that he impacted, but it was contained. But once the Spirit came, there was an explosion of God's grace and mercy in the world through the Holy Spirit. People coming into a happy submission and obedience to Jesus by the Spirit. And so it was important for them to know that the Spirit was not going to remain shut up inside of them. 
It's important for you and I to know that the Spirit was given to us not so that it would remain shut up inside of us, but that it would go forth from them, the Spirit would empower them to display God's grace and kindness into the, into the world. That the Holy Spirit comes not only to guide and to protect and to support you and them in their private life, but the Holy Spirit is coming to them, to his children, so that he might extend more widely his power and impact on the world as he comes alongside them to carry out their mission. That's how they were to be thinking about the the coming of the Spirit. He comes alongside to support and help and enable them to carry out and continue the mission of Christ, not to be shut up inside of them. And so in verse 8, there's actually three ways that Jesus says the Spirit will work in the world. He says, and when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So you might call this the tilling and preparing of the soil. That's kind of how I thought about it. The Spirit's going to be sent. He's going to come into the world, and he's going to till and prepare the soil for, for the harvest that they would be a part of. And so by the Spirit, their preaching will be so powerful and so effectual, efficacious, that it's going to bring even the most hardened and rebellious sinner into subjection to Christ. That Greek word for convict, it can have the sense of putting to shame or exposing, reproving, or refuting. And every time it's used in the New Testament, it's always coupled with repenting, a summons to repentance. That word convict or reprove, it's usually, almost always, I would say, followed by a call to repentance. And so in this sense, the Holy Spirit comes to shame the world not the world in the general big sense, but the, the people, the persons in the world, the rebellious in the world, to convince them of their own guilt and call them to repentance. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when he came, he makes, he makes men see more clearly their guilt regarding its sin, its righteousness, and it's coming judgment. The world's sin, the world's, the fault of the world's sin, the world's righteousness, and their judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The same thing Jesus did when he came. He's just extending that ministry. And so the way he does this is through the gospel and the witness of Christ, the witnesses of Christ who bring it to the world. He comes to them and works in the world through them. That's what he does through us. And that's a huge blessing. 
by the mouths of sinful and weak people, you and me, the disciples, the downcast, the lowly, the, the despised, the not high, the not mighty, the not powerful, that's you and me, that's the disciples, by your mouth and by my mouth, we proclaim a gospel to the world and by the proclamation of that word and the proclamation of Christ to the world, nations and people's lives are completely transformed. Not because of your wisdom, not because of my wisdom, not because of your eloquence or my eloquence, not because of our power, but because the Holy Spirit comes and through that word, and through the sharing of the gospel and telling people about Christ, he, he creates transformation in the world. He takes his word and he applies it into the stubborn, hard, rocky hearts of men. And it takes root in the heart and it changes the heart from stone to flesh and then it yields fruit for the glory of God. If the Spirit does not come, this is what he's telling them, if the Spirit, and I do not send the Spirit to you, all that you seek to do on your mission, it, it's like speaking dead words. Does that make sense? It's just, it's just words if the Holy Spirit doesn't come. It's just intellectual knowledge. It's just sort of thinking about the languages and parsing verbs and hearing a story. It doesn't really do anything unless the Holy Spirit comes and changes the hearts of men and women. Unless he quickens you to the understanding and he opens your eyes, you are on a mission for nothing. The Holy Spirit must come to work in the world in order to draw sinners to faith and to repentance. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul thought about it. In 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6, he says, as a minister of the gospel, as a witness of Christ, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit of God coming into the world, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he goes on to say and explain each of those three things. He says the Spirit comes into the world, and he says convicting the world, and you'll notice he says concerning sin. 
concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now you'll notice here, he uses the singular word for sin. He doesn't say that he's coming into the world to convict the world of its sins. There are lots of sins in the world, right? I mean, you know the song, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Then you will be amazed or something at what the Lord has done. I forgot the other part. But the point is, blessings are all over the place, right? If you really stop to think about it, the the blessings of God are everywhere to be found. But you know what is just as prevalent in the world and is to be found is the reality of sins. The sins, plural. It's all over the place. It's not just out there, right? It's not, it's not just out there happening. It's actually in, in here, in our hearts. It's in our thinking. It's in our minds. We sin many different sins by the way we think and the way we speak and the acts that we do. And, and the Holy Spirit, he's saying, is coming to convict the world, but he doesn't say of those sins. He says he's coming to convict the world concerning sin, singularly. And the sin, singularly, that the Holy Spirit is coming to convict the world of is because they do not believe in me. That's sobering, and it's sobering because of this reason, to me, as I thought about it. There's all kinds of sins, like we said. And here's the thing. People in the world can have deliverance from particular sins that they may be enslaved in, even if they're not a Christian. So if someone was an an alcoholic and that was their struggle, they can reform from that particular sin. Or if someone was a thief and they went to jail and they were being punished for it and then, and then they no longer are a thief and they no longer steal and, and they can be reformed from that sin. Or someone maybe used to be angry and abusive and then they stopped being that toward their kids or toward their wife or spouse or husband and they can be reformed from that. But the one sin that you cannot reform in this world is the sin of not believing in Jesus. The the only way for that to be reformed is to what? To believe in Jesus. And so Jesus says the Holy Spirit's coming to convict the world concerning that sin that ultimately damns people to hell of not believing in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. That is the sin that every human being must repent of. You can make your life as whitewashed on the outside, like Jesus called them, Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. You can make your life look spotless 
you can go to work every day, you can provide for your family, you can be faithful in your efforts, you can, you can feed the poor and help the sick, you can go to church every Sunday and read your Bible, you can go um, down to the local food bank and, and give food at the food shelter, you can go on a mission trip if you want, and you can go over overseas to some impoverished land, and you can help and serve them and do VBS, and you can lead in a kid's ministry, and you can sing in a choir, and you can sing hymns, and you can do feed hamburgers to people, you can go out in the world and do all kinds of things in the world, and you can actually stay married to your spouse, that means, and you can raise your family and do good in the family and, and help your kids and provide for their retirement and, and give to charities. I mean, you can do all of that stuff in the world and not be a drunk and not be an adulterer and not be a drug addict and not be a murderer and not be a thief. You can be, not be any of these things and do everything perfectly as you might look in the world where everyone would look and go, what a great citizen, what a great example in the world. I've seen no better example in the world. And if you don't believe in Jesus as your Savior, you will go to hell forever. Because that is the sin that will condemn every person in the world it, what will condemn them is if they do not place their faith and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because you have no righteousness of your own. We have no goodness. We need a righteousness that is foreign to us in order to be redeemed. And so the Spirit comes as Jesus said in 8.24, if they do not believe in me, if you do not believe in me, Jesus said, John 8.24, you will die in your sins, plural. See? If you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins, plural. Because that's ultimately how we live. We live in our sins, plural, and belief in Christ is the only way to be redeemed. And until we place our faith in him, we will be outside of him and separated from him. And the Holy Spirit convicts men of this separation, and it convicts men that the reign of sin is in the world and that we need to be reconciled to God. And this moves us to the next work of the Spirit in the world. And it flows out of that first work, and we've already alluded to it, but it says... They need to know their sin because if they don't know their sin of unbelieving Jesus, not believing in Jesus, they will never see their need for true righteousness. If you are not first convicted of your sin of not believing in Jesus, then you will not see your need for righteousness. And so Jesus says the Holy Spirit also comes 
to convict the world concerning its righteousness. And he says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. What Jesus is getting at here, he says, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its righteousness. And by righteousness, he means here that which is imparted to us through faith in Jesus, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, which would never be ours by keeping the law, that righteousness he must, he's going to convict the world of it. And in other words, this is saying that the world thinks it is righteous. But Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousness are like what? Filthy rags. Polluted garments. And so the, wor- the, the Spirit comes and it convicts the world to remind the world that what you think is righteous is filthy before God. Boy, that's, well, that's very uncomfortable. I don't, I don't like to think of that way. I mean, look at all the things I did this last week. Look at all the stuff I did, and God says, apart from Jesus, you know how I view that? I look at that righteousness that you think is so good, and he says, it's like a filthy, polluted rag. The kind you just just want to get rid of. You want to wrap it in the trash and you want to put it away and you just want it out of your, your presence because it's ugly, because it's, it's, it's not pleasant. It's, and, and God says it, that's how our righteousness is. And the reason we know that the righteousness of man is like that before God Jesus says is because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. In other words, when Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of their righteousness, concerning their righteousness, because I go to the Father, what he's saying is when I am crucified and buried and I rise again from the dead and I am exalted back to the right hand of the Father, you know what that says? It says that the only person in the world that did not deserve to die and was unjustly put to dead because he had perfect righteousness was who? Was Jesus. This is why when Jesus was crucified and he was put to death unjustly, This is why he rose again. Because God looked at his son 
and said, this one of all humanity did not deserve to die. And so he rose him again from the dead because he alone was perfectly righteous, was perfectly good. He perfectly kept the law. This is why Jesus rose again from the dead and went back to the right hand of the Father. But you see, if you and I died and there was no Savior and we died offering our righteousness to God, you know what would have happened? We would have died, we would have been buried, we would have went to hell for eternity to pay for the consequence of our sin and our lack of righteousness. And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning what they think is righteous. And the Holy Spirit says, it's not righteous. You know why it's not righteous? Take a look at Jesus. He rose again because he was alone without sin. God saves you, beloved, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. And the way the world will know this, this righteousness of Christ, is by us faithfully proclaiming it, but also by the way that we also live in the world. Because why? Because if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are a what? A new creature. You now have the mind of Christ. You now have the spirit dwelling in you. And so your life will look different. Your words will be different. You will be a representative of Christ in the world so that when they look at you and me, beloved, and they look at us as those who take the name of Jesus, they should see in us a righteousness and we should be able to tell them why that is. It's because we have been redeemed by the righteous one. And he alone deserves the glory. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. And then the work of the Spirit includes concerning its judgment. So concerning its sin, the sin of not believing, concerning its righteousness, that is the emptiness of it, and concerning its judgment. Now this here, the Holy Spirit, what Jesus has in view here is not the final coming judgment of God. I think what is in view here is the the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world concerning the world's judgment. In other words, under the influence of Satan, the God of this world, the judgments of the world are blind, ignorant, and evil. 
This was no more clearly seen in their verdict regarding Jesus Christ. The world will give its perspective on things. It will give its judgments on things. And they gave the one judgment and the one verdict on Jesus Christ when they said that he is not worthy to be among us. That was the judgment that the world made. And the Holy Spirit comes and convicts them concerning that judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit convicts the world of its false judgments regarding Christ because Christ triumphed over the grave and Satan has been condemned as a liar, just as he is, and those who repeat his lies about Jesus are also convicted of false judgments by the Spirit regarding Jesus the Son. The manifestation of Christ's triumph is seen in the good blessings that Christ has brought into the world through the work of the Spirit in the lives of his people and the days coming when all things that are currently disordered and broken in the world are going to be restored fully by Christ in his fully consummated kingdom. That day is coming and the judgment of the world against Christ and against his people is the Spirit is convicting them of that bad judgment because Christ is now and in the future will be triumphant. So they just need to look and see. And so as the Spirit works in the world by convicting the world concerning their sin of unbelief, convicting the world concerning their need for true righteousness, convicting the world concerning their lack of right judgment about Jesus. In all of this, the Holy Spirit goes ahead of us, and the Holy Spirit works to prepare the soil for the mission of bringing the gospel to them. This was a great encouragement to these disciples because they, though the world hate them, they need not fear because the helper is coming to carry on and extend the ministry of Christ and to enable them to go out into the world with the gospel. And so our Lord goes on to tell them in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's got, he knows there's a lot more he could say to them. And they're weak in their flesh. So he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So he's saying, be patient. I know you're struggling here. I know you're, you're feeling weak. You can't bear these things. You're a little unsettled, but be patient because not long from now, the spirit of truth is going to come and he's going to guide you into a deeper understanding of these things. Now, what's important to know about these verses is that these verses, while they do in some way apply to us, these are very specifically given to the apostles. So in other words, this is not a promise to you and me that the Spirit is going to guide us into some kind of new revelation or new truth. 
this, he's not saying that we as Christians now will have some kind of insight into, into God's word that wasn't there before, or he's going to give us a new revelation like what happened with the Mormons or with, with uh, um, Islam and, and the Quran or, or what happens even within the Roman Catholic Church where you have utterances and new revelation from, from the Pope, right? There is no new revelation coming for them. That's not what Jesus is saying. The revelation he is saying is coming from them is that which comes from Jesus, and it's that which is according to the authority of uh, the, the triune God and the Father's will, and it is that which confirms the gospel of the Lord Jesus and not more than that. And that is, beloved, what we have in the Bible. So when they, the Holy Spirit came and he led them into truth, he gave us his word. And what we have here is that, that truth that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write, and, and it is a finished and complete revelation. All that is necessary for us to know about Christ is here. And so they wrote it down, and, and we have it from, from the Holy Spirit. And so, beloved, I hope and pray that that prepares you and I for the mission. In a world that hates you, it's okay, because the Spirit loves you, and Christ loves you, and he has prepared us for this with his word, and he has gone ahead of us to till the ground. And so we now can come to the Lord's table to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, to remember his goodness, his righteousness, his forgiveness, and that his kingdom is reigning even now, right? So this, beloved, is for those of you who have laid aside your own righteousness to cling to Christ's. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have confessed your sin and confessed him as Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus invites you to the table to remember him. If you have not confessed your sin, if you are not believing in Jesus, then the Lord says this is not for you until you do. And so we would ask you not to partake. Or if you are clinging on to some sin that you are refusing besides the sin of unbelief, if you believe in Jesus and yet you're now living in some kind of sin, then you can come to the table, but you must confess that sin and repent of it. Look at, our, look at your lives, beloved. Take stock. Evaluate your heart and your life. Confess your sin because this is a reminder that in Christ you are forgiven. Is that good news? It's good news, beloved. So let me invite the deacons and uh, those that are helping up to, to serve.